The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. continuing our study of Paul and his life and his letters, and we're into the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you were here last week, you know I started the book, and we covered some theology in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I've decided, after a lot of prayer and study, we're going to spend three weeks on the last three chapters. I thought about combining them. We're going to do a deeper dive, because once I got into these chapters, I was reminded of what I learned years ago when I first started teaching Ephesians, and that is... Uh, the last three chapters are probably my favorite three chapters of any one book. They are so deep and so rich. And if I was told you can only teach three books out of the, or three chapters out of the Bible over and over and over again, it would be Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It is so fundamental to how we live our lives, what we do as parents, what we do as spouses, we do as employees and employers, everything we do in life you find foundational in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So you'll understand as we dive into it why I've decided to slow down and do it in three weeks, but it's a really, really rich dive, and I think you're going to appreciate it. Just to put us into context, last week I covered the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we talked about our position in Christ, chosen since before uh, time existed, before the foundations of the earth. I explained to me my best guess and how that happens in our space-time continuum. We talked about how we obtained an inheritance and how we have the resources in Christ to do things that we don't think we can do. We talked about what Christ has done in us, how we're saved by love, saved for a purpose, saved as a gift from him through faith. We don't just believe because we're smart and we figure that's the best system. And most importantly, in chapter 2, verses 10, we talked about how we're saved to do good things for other people. And I'm going to pick up on that point in a couple of minutes, but it's fundamental in chapter 2, verse 10, the reason why we're saved. It's not just to get us to heaven. It's to change who we are. And then in chapter 3, or the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, we talked about what he's done between us, this mystery of the church and the fullness of God and how we're unified with other people. And I talked about the how ironic it is we've got all these Christian denominations and different uh, branches of Christianity and all this division that uh, Christ never intended. But it's the reality when you put uh, what God intended in the midst of sinful human beings, despite his intent that we be one, we're very, very diversified. We talked about that last week. So if you missed the lesson, go back and listen to the uh, tape of it uh, because it gives us a real important fundamental basis for where he's going over the next couple of weeks. So that's his position in Christ uh, as he was writing. Now, it was interesting as I listened to the sermon this morning because I put on your outline before I knew what Greg was teaching a real important transitional point. And his transitional point is the way he writes and how that applies in what we do. Every time Paul writes a letter to a group of people, to a church, more than just one person, he does the exact same thing. He does theology first and then application. Theology first, then application. Greg's sermon last week and this morning hit on this exact point. Greg's whole point about how do you deal with New Year's resolutions is don't set up a to-do list, change who you are. 
because when you change who you are, the to-dos that follow flow naturally from the change in who you are. So the application for us is we always want to buy books on what to do. We want to buy books on how to parent, how to lead, how to uh, be a better spouse, all the different things. We want the, ha the to-do list. The reason Paul does not write a how-to self-help manual is every letter he writes to a group of people is theology first. He wants to change who we are. So my challenge for you is, as you think about what you read, what you watch, what you spend your time doing, think about learning theology first. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go buy a book in systematic theology. I'm not encouraging you to do that. You can. I can give you some ideas on some good ones. That's not what I'm encouraging you to do. What I'm encouraging you to do is to figure out who Jesus Christ is in you. Because rather than trying to become a better whatever, better parent, better grandparent, better husband, better wife, better boss, better employee, rather than trying to be a better whatever, which is what a how-to book teaches you to do, what Paul teaches us how to, how to do is how to be more like Christ. And if we are like Christ, we have a better theology and understanding of what it means to be like Christ, everything flows from that. The to-do list flows from that. So how the to-do list to be a better parent or grandparent, to be a better spouse, better employee, employer, flows from being more Christ-like. So theology first, that the model we get in uh, Ephesians is so good because it follows what we've already seen. In Galatians, when I taught you that a year ago, we did four chapters on theology, two chapters on how do you live a good Christian life. The book of Romans, I spent like eight weeks in the book of Romans. We did 11 chapters on theology, five chapters on how do you live life. Same thing here. We've got three chapters on theology, three chapters on practical. So we're going to do the deep dive on practical because everybody loves it. But I intentionally spent a whole lesson on the theology of chapters one through three so we understand what it means to be more Christ-like. Christ for us, Christ in us, Christ between us. So that's critical. Now, he's writing to a mature church. And what follows is what I've called a life worth living. Uh, I looked up and I thought, yeah, somebody's plagiarized that name in a couple of different books. There's multiple writers with books of that name. Uh, this is a life worth living from Paul as interpreted by Chris Martin. And uh, I want you to understand that it is uh, intended for a mature audience. I don't mean in terms of an R-rated focus. I mean in terms of a Christian focus of understanding that the basics, the elementary lessons don't have to be retaught. He doesn't have to start chapter 1, verse 4 by reminding everybody to go to church and be connected to other believers. He doesn't have to start chapter 4 by saying, don't forget to pray. He doesn't have to start by chapter 4 by saying, don't forget scripture. That's elementary. He's already taught them that over the last three years when he was with them. He's writing a letter to a mature body that says, you got the basics. Now, how do you deal with life? And it's going to be great, and I think you're going to like what it does, but it focuses starting on ourselves. And it talks about the life worth living, focuses on what we do not to create the to-do list, but to change who we are. How do I change and make myself more like Christ? 
as a spouse, as a parent or grandparent, as a worker or a boss? What do I got to do to become more like Christ? And so we're going to go through chapter 4 today. We're going to go through 5 and the first part of 6 next week. And in the end of chapter 6 and our third week of this study of the life worth living. But our first dive here in chapter 4 I think you're going to like because he starts with this idea of the personal walk. The daily walk and what I do seven days a week, 365 days a year to walk as a Christian. I'm going to read you six verses that we're going to digress and dive down into them. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he's in house arrest in Rome, as you know, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's one big sentence, big sigh, right? You read that and you're like, eh, okay, I kind of get what he's talking about. Let me do a deeper dive. I put on your outline what our deeper dive is. He starts with the call. He says, the calling to which you have been called... And then I should have highlighted it down here at the bottom. He says, belongs to your call. And the belongs to your call ties up to above, which is our call to do what? That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 2 told us we were called not just to be saved to get us into heaven. Chapter 2, verse 10 from last week says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We talked last week that does not mean doing things to earn our place in heaven. That's already been done. That's Ephesians 2 chapters 1 through uh, verses 1 through 9. He saved us, we got eternity in heaven. Chapter 10 is the reason why we've been changed because otherwise we'd be saved and go straight to heaven. He left us here for a reason, that's verse 10, to do things good for other people. That's the Greek interpretation here, the Greek uh, transliteration here of good works is good things for others. And so the call is save to do good things for others. Now, if we're called to do that, how do we do it? That's the second part of verse 2 where, he say, where I've highlighted here with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting this morning that Greg preached on humility. I don't have to repeat what he said if you were in the service this morning, but he got a great definition of doing those things that our sin nature doesn't want to do. Our sin nature wants to puff up. Our sin nature wants to be the, the you know, quarterback on the football team. And humility here is interesting because in Greek, there's no such word. The word here is actually lowly. The Greeks found the concept of humility to be so disgusting they didn't even give it a word. There is no word in Greek for humility, so Paul comes up with this word for lowly, which is essentially recognizing that there is no job that God could call us to do that is beneath us if God calls us to do it. So if the call is, I'm spiritually gifted in sweeping floors, that I'm spiritually gifted in sweeping floors, there is no job too low. So don't view it as humility being, I'm uh, not going to brag about myself. View it positionally, that there's no position I can be in, no job I can have, no giftedness God has given me 
that I'm going to view as not worthy of me because I've defined it as being low. So humility is a recognition of its position of lowliness as the rest of culture views it as something not worthy of our time. It's interesting, his little second phrase up here of gentleness. We view gentleness uh, like the way we would treat a butterfly or the way we would treat our spouse, ideally, of gentleness. The Greek word here doesn't mean that. The Greek word for gentleness is a description or a word that means under control. It is a description that you would use to describe a domesticated animal. If I've got a lion or a tiger or a, uh, a Doberman, you know, a really aggressive dog or a pit bull, but yet they are under control, they are in subjugation to the master, this is the word I would use, this word for gentleness. So it's not describing someone that walks around in an effeminate way, that never has strength, that never speaks with authority. It's simply saying that person's power is undiminished. That thing's essence is undiminished. It is under control of the master. That's the word for gentleness. So it's humility of position. It's within that position, recognizing a gentleness being under the, the control of the master. And patience, because patience is what he ties with it. Because I've said so many times in lesson, the problems with us is we feel God's calling us to do something. And we interpret that as something we need to be in charge of, right? God's calling me to teach, so I need to teach a thousand people. God's calling me to preach, so I need to be the pastor of a mega church right now. God's calling me to lead a prison ministry, so I can't just go serve. I need to run the whole prison, right? That's the way our sinful nature interprets it. Patience, he's reminding us from Genesis through the end of Revelation, usually for God's saints, takes decades Right, Abraham, decades. David, decades. Moses, decades. The prophets, decades. Where to get where God needed them, there were no overnight transformations. Every saint of God, including Paul, has a multi-year, multi-decade transition before they're in, the, in a position to lead the marching band. Until that, it's patience to learn patience to serve, patience to be obedient. And Paul says you got to remember that. And the reason why you're doing that is to maintain the unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. So we're trying to do it to help other people and help them relate to the body of Christ. Now, it's interesting how he ends. He says the reason for doing this is because we're one. He says seven different times, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. The reason he uses all those things is to simply say we're doing this to be unified. We're doing this to reach out to other people, to not say there's a difference because somebody's rich or somebody's poor or there's a racial difference or there's some kind of educational socioeconomic difference or there's a denominational difference. He's saying we help other people in humility, with gentleness, with patience to make us all part of the body of Christ. It's the reason why the hand can't go do one thing and the foot goes and does another thing and the shoulder goes and does another thing. It all works together and that's his picture here. Now, he then applies this personal walk designed to use our spiritual gifts, designed uh, to recognize that there's one spirit but a whole bunch of ways this manifests. In our next couple of verses, we're going to see how he applies spiritual gifts. Now, when I taught you 1 Corinthians, we did two lessons on spiritual gifts. 
This is kind of the bookend on spiritual gifts just to remind us. If you want to know that lesson, I'll email it to you. You can, I think, find it on the podcast little website we have. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 if you want to know where it is in our lessons. Uh, I did two whole lessons on what's your spiritual gift and the diagnostic and I even gave you a website uh, that you can go take an inventory of your spiritual gifts. But here Paul reminds this church about their spiritual gifts and he says in four, 11 through se- uh, sorry 7 through 11 of chapter 4, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And then it continues with what he gave, and I'll continue that section in our next little topic. Let's stop here where the ellipses is. And talk about this confusing part because he starts talking about gifts and then he takes this left turn to talk about something Christ did. Something about above and below. What in the world's that? And then he ends by talking about teachers and prophets and evangelists. And we all read that and go, that ain't us. So what's he talking about here? Let's break it down. On your outline, I said the reality of spiritual gifts. That's verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I can do a whole lesson just on this verse, but i got to hit it in five minutes. Our first point is that it, de- it starts and ends with grace. Spiritual gifts are something God gives us that we don't deserve. So he gave me the gift of teaching even though I'm a bad teacher. That's what that means. That means he gives you something that you're not naturally gifted at. And that's important to understand because when it comes time to figure out your spiritual gifts, we all have the same reaction. I can't do that because I'm not very good at it. That's the diagnostic of the person that's capable of using their spiritual gift because you recognize it ain't me. It's not what I was born with. It's not my brain. It's not my body. It's not my training. It's not my education. It's something God gives me. So they sit around in heaven and they don't say, wow, ain't Chris a great teacher? No, they sit around and say, Chris is so laughable. Look what God did. Isn't that awesome? Because he's so bad. That's grace. That's giving you something that you don't have and you don't deserve and it comes from God. But the second point is the phrase each, each one of us. As we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, every single Christian who has Jesus Christ in his heart has a spiritual gift. The only question is what is yours and what are you doing with it? So no one gets to get out of jail free card. No one gets to sit on the sidelines and watch everybody else use their spiritual gifts and say, well, he just didn't give me one or I just don't know what it is. Everybody's got one. But where I really want to talk for just a couple of minutes is this last little phrase, according to the measure of Christ's gift. What we all fail to comprehend in spiritual gifts is they are measured out by God in accordance with our faithfulness to the gift. Now, in life, we can understand that real easily. In spiritual context, that just blows our mind. In life, let's take an athletic example. Michael Jordan, my favorite basketball player of all time, in junior high school and high school, had the giftedness of the greatest basketball player in the history of the world. 
Now, was he the greatest basketball player in the history of the world in junior high and high school? No. At 15, he got cut from his high school team because he wasn't even the best freshman in his high school, much less the best guy in his high school, much less the best player in the country. He got cut. But four years later, he started at North Carolina and won the national championship. So the point here is just because you've got a giftedness that is undeveloped, it does not mean it's an invalid gift. You've got the gift. Michael Jordan had that gift. Uh, Pavarotti had the gift of singing even though he didn't sing in high school. It was a giftedness. It was just undeveloped. I could give you thousands of other people that you know or have heard of that today you'd look at and say they're the most gifted that's ever lived in that discipline. But flashback in time, there was a measure of the giftedness that had not yet developed. Now let me get real personal real quick because I'm going to give an illustration that for years I couldn't give, but I'm going to apply it because it deals with this class and how we view giftedness of and a measure of giftedness. Uh, a lot of times we discount our own giftedness and we discount the giftedness of others because the measure that God has given is not yet fully developed. And we look at someone and we say, you're not very good at that. I'm not sure that's your spiritual gift. Or you're not very good at that, so I don't want to validate that spiritual gift. The application I want to give you guys that hits very, very close to home is this class. This class started several years ago, and I was asked to be the teacher, and a guy named Tom Owens was asked to be the director. Tom said, I am happy to be the director, but I also want to develop my spiritual gift of teaching because I believe God's called me to teach. And he explained to Greg, and he explained to Ben Pritchett, and he explained to me, all the reasons why I thought he had the spiritual gift of teaching. Today, I have no doubt Tom Owens has a spiritual gift of teaching. But the way that manifested several years ago is when I had to skip a Sunday, I would let Tom teach, and people in the class didn't like Tom's teaching because it wasn't Chris Martin. I had three different people come to me and say, if you're going to let him teach for you when you're not here, my spouse and I are not going to attend this class. Tom is no longer in this class because he went to teach young marrieds where he and Patty could work with young married couples and he could teach them on a weekly or bi-weekly basis and use a spiritual gift. I have no doubt Tom has a spiritual gift of teaching, but his development of teaching was decades different than mine. And I would say to somebody that say they'd want to be in this class if I was going to let Tom teach. And I would say, you got to remember, I've been teaching for the better part of 30 years and when I started teaching and my parents would come and hear me, I couldn't even get a compliment out of my own parents, right? My teaching took a lot of development before someone said, eh, it's passable. And so that's true with every spiritual gift. So the lesson, whether it's someone in here with a spiritual gift or someone else in the church in a spiritual gift or someone in the world, we've got to recognize that they can be just like the Michael Jordan or the Pavarotti that is gifted but not fully measured in their giftedness. And our job is not to be the judge. Remember how we started this. What's the purpose of all this? It's unity in Christ. It's we come together, we encourage one another, even though there's different measures of grace. 
So we don't start out in our spiritual gifts, leading the Bible study, leading the church, leading the ministry. It's getting plugged in. So based on our faithfulness, God develops that spiritual gift. And then we get in a position where you can do those things of leadership after years of training and patience and development. So that's the reality of our spiritual gifts. The significance of our spiritual gifts is this part in here that doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance. It's this stuff about where it says, he ascended on to high and there's a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and he descended to the lower regions. What in the world does that mean? Now, in 1 Peter, Peter talks about this exact same thing and you can go read it on your own because 1 Peter is a real thin book. But what it's talking about, I cannot definitively tell you absolutely positively here's what it means because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of depth. But it says... Jesus did something with hell after the crucifixion before he went to heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father. There are a number of people interpret this that describe the view in the Old Testament where when people died, it does not say they went to heaven. When the Bible refers to the people that died before Christ Jesus, it refers to them as being in the bosom of Abraham or paradise. After Christ, it refers to them as being in the presence of Christ with the Father. Okay, so before Christ, there's a terminology difference. People have said this is not purgatory. This is not a middle ground. It was just not in the presence of the Father until Christ could be there at the right hand of the Father. And so people have said he went to this place, the bosom of Abraham, and he led them to the Father. Maybe the case will figure out in heaven it doesn't really matter. Other people have said, well, he had a parade through hell. That Christ, after the crucifixion, went to the abode, the spiritual abode of Satan and the demons and said, I won. You are now under my control. And I am going to go sit at the right hand of the Father. That theologically took place. First Peter tells us that's what happened. The other thing that we have a clear uh, evidence of in Scripture is that he moved us as believers from being under the dominion of Satan to being under the dominion of Jesus Christ and God the Father. So even though none of us have been to hell, we've lived in places on earth that kind of felt like hell, but we've never been to hell. But the dominion that we live in and the power that is ultimately in charge of us, when you become a Christian, transitions from being under the dominion of Satan to the dominion of Christ. So all three of those are complementary. I can't dogmatically say it's number one, but it's not two or three. I'm just telling you what biblically is true. So when he describes this descension to the lower parts of the earth and his ascension to heaven, what he is essentially saying is that if you've got the sign of giftedness, that the significance of the giver defines the significance of your gift. I love gifts from anybody. We all like giving gifts, but there's some gifts I really treasure. I got about 10,000 books at my house. If you come over to my house, I got a really big library. I can walk down the shelf and point out book by book the ones that my mom and my dad gave me. I can identify in 30 seconds the books that my grandparents gave me. I can identify in 30 seconds the book that Natalie or my kids gave me, right? The nature of the giver defines the significance of the gift. 
So the digression here about the guy that goes to hell and said, I won. The guy that sits at the right hand of the father defines the giver of the gift. So this is saying rather than blow off your gift because you don't understand it, you disagree with it, or it's not what you defined, you want it as your spiritual gift. This is saying the giver of the gift defines how significant your gift is because the giver of the gift is the creator of the universe and the ruler of the universe. So don't second guess your gift because you don't like it or you don't want it or you think it's something that ought to be given to somebody else and not you. This is saying the giver of the gift is such a big deal because what he did to hell and what he's doing in heaven. The nature of the spiritual gift is the very, very end where it says he gave these gifts and he starts naming apostles and prophets. Now, to study spiritual gifts, you've got to look at the whole New Testament. And I showed you this slide and I taught you 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because I did the first book into gifts in Romans. I did two weeks in 2 Corinthians. I'm doing the back end here in Ephesians. And you put all these together and you can understand what your spiritual gifts are. I'm, we don't have time because I did it back in 1 Corinthians on what your diagnostic is and how you do the test and what it means and how you develop it. Take me to lunch if you need help on that. But our point here is that the nature of the gifts are diverse. And the reason for the gifts we see in verses 12 and 13, to equip the saints, that's every single Christian on the planet Earth, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The purpose of my spiritual gift is not to get me to heaven or you to heaven. The purpose of my spiritual gift is not to entertain Christians. The purpose of my spiritual gift is not free slave labor. The purpose of my gift is God's plan to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, what I've been called for, my ministry to teach, your ministry to do whatever God's called you to do for the building up of the body of Christ. In some ways to encourage them, in some ways to help them physically, in some ways to help them financially, in some ways to help them uh, spiritually or mentally like we do in this class or sometimes even emotionally. The nature of our spiritual gifts is external. It's not about us. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. It doesn't matter if you don't want it. It doesn't matter if you don't appreciate it. It's for serving other people. Now, I will say in my personal experience... If someone is rebelling against a spiritual gift, in all likelihood, they either don't understand what their spiritual gift is or there's a sin issue that Satan is using to separate them from their spiritual gift. If it's a true giftedness, in my experience, there is a resonance in your soul of joy and peace. If you think about if I said, write down on a piece of paper what you're the best at. Everybody's got a different answer. For some people, it's cooking. For some people, it's encouragement. For some people, it's giving love or showing love. For some people, it's, it's you know, accounting or for me, practicing law or whatever it is you think you're the best at. For some, it's vocational. If you think about where there's giftedness in profession or giftedness in person, when you do it and do it well, it makes you feel good. That, that exercise of your giftedness just resonates in your soul. Spiritual gifts are the same way. Getting ready to teach is a drag. Spending hours and hours a week studying and praying and thinking, I'd be, rather be doing a thousand things. 
but when I teach and when I finish a lesson, it's like doing something. If you're gifted at basketball, how much joy you get out of shooting a basketball or playing a game. It's the same thing with using your spiritual gift. It resonates in your soul. So if you find yourself hearing this saying, I hate my spiritual gift. I'm not good at it. I don't want to do it. There's a disconnect somewhere because when you find your spiritual gift and you do it, it resonates in your soul. The ability to understand that is our next little part here on spiritual maturity. On pers- oh, sorry, personal maturity. On personal maturity, I broke it down into the traps of immaturity and the triumphs of maturity. And this is a much, much, much bigger issue than age or how many years you've been a Christian or how many years you've been serious about your faith. He says in chapter 4, verses 14, that this whole focus on personal maturity is so that we're no longer acting as children, children tossed to and from by the waves and carried about by every wave of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, the way I want to apply this is not an issue of age or experience, but an issue of perception, right? The analogy of kids works with perception because when my kids were little, I could show them a television show that they were attracted to, and that suddenly became so significant to them, right? When Josh, my son, was six, it was Power Rangers, right? When my little daughter, Elizabeth, was four and five, it's Dora the Explorer, right? It's those things that really capture their mind. Now, things happen in Power Rangers and Dora the Explorer that we adults look at, and we just shake our head going, that's silly, right? That may be fun, but that's not the way the real world works. But it captures the mind of the immature. That's what Paul is trying to say theologically, that we've got to grow up with a sensitivity so that we don't have our minds captured by those things that are ridiculous, In our modern Christian culture in 2021, or 2020, I tried to think in 2021 going forward the next couple of years, what Christians are likely to be distracted by the most. And I even asked a couple of preacher buddies of mine what they thought Christians uh, today in 2020 in Houston are distracted by the most. And it was interesting that every single pastor I talked to across multiple denominations gave me the exact same answer. Christians today are distracted by the illusion of emotional worship. They're distracted by the illusion of emotional worship. Christians today, if they're immature, define a great worship experience as their personal reaction to a great orchestra or a great choir or singing a chorus over and over and over and over again until it moves them emotionally, or the pastor making them laugh or making them cry. And it is an immature reaction to an emotional response to basically having our strings pulled, as opposed to a mature reaction that says, that's checking it in terms of its biblical accuracy, its theological depth, its practical application, we get wrapped up in the emotion. So a great application of the transition between immature to mature is someone that can enjoy an emotional worship experience, but not define its value or its accuracy in terms of what it makes you feel like in terms of laughing or crying, but in terms of checking it with the Bible checking it with historical Christian theology. 
And the reason why most of us can't do that is we don't know it. You sing a verse, but you don't know if it's even accurate. You sing a chorus over and over and over again, and it may just be the equivalent of cotton candy. Yeah, it's nice. It's not wrong. It's just not nourishing. It's just cotton candy. And so spiritual maturity, to transition from that, Paul gives us in the end of this this passage towards uh, 15 and 16, where it says, to mature manhood or womanhood, the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I underlined the key to transitioning from an, emotion, uh, an immature reaction to something spiritual to a mature reaction. And it's what I underlined to grow into Christ. To grow into Christ. Now, if my dad or my granddad, when I was a teenager, gave me a $1,000 Italian suit that they had outgrown. It's actually happened uh, with my grandfather. My, grandf- my, my dad's dad gave away suits like crazy. He'd buy a $1,000 Italian suit, wear it, and then give it to a pastor that didn't have one. Well, he gave one to me when I was like a freshman in high school, and I was you know, probably 135 pounds, and my grandfather was probably closer to 180. Right? Suit didn't fit me. But he gives me a suit... And says, you're going to grow into this. Hold on to it. Now, I can try as hard as I want to grow 50 pounds of muscle, and it ain't going to happen overnight. right? It's not a matter of willpower. I, something has to happen to transform me into that suit. That's what maturity is. It's transforming us into Christ. It's transforming us into the patience of Christ if you're an impatient person. It's transferring you into the love of Christ if there's people in our culture that disgust you and you don't love them. It's transforming you into the, um, uh, in, into the wisdom of Christ if there's things that you just don't understand. Now, how do I transition or transform into Christ If I'm not there, what does it take? It takes time and it takes Jesus Christ himself. I don't learn it just living life. I learn it when I'm close to him. How do I get close to him? Time in his word, time in his presence through prayer. So if there's an area of life I want to be transformed into Christ, I got to spend time in his word on that subject. I got to spend time with him and just separating and saying, okay, God, this is our time. Let's talk. I'm going to talk to you. You talk to me. And you just start spending time with Christ, and we grow into him. Now, if you do that, you get to our next little passage, which is renewal. And there's a process of renewal that makes what I just told you possible. Paul continues in verses 17 through 24. He says on this issue of the problem He says, don't be like the Gentiles. Verse uh, 17, in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They've got a hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice of every kind of impurity. What was going on in this audience that will help you understand this 
is that in the culture that Paul was writing to, there was a huge discrepancy between Jews and the rest of the world. Jews were all about study. You went to Hebrew school since you could walk. You learned the Torah. You learned the prophets. You learned the wisdom. You spent time with the rabbis. You learned, you learned, you learned. In the rest of the world, the rest of the Greek world, the rest of the Roman world, you didn't learn. You may go to school, but you experienced. It was about not studying the Olympics. It was about being in the Olympics. It wasn't about studying military. It was about being in the military. It wasn't about studying theology. It was about going to a you know, cultic uh, place of prostitution worship and experiencing what he's describing as the Gentile world is very much like our world today that says it's all about the experience. In our culture, we tend to value, and certainly the non-Christian world values experience, what something somebody thinks because they've done it transcends some truth from education or some truth from Scripture. And so the problem is essentially saying experience trumps study, the body trumps the mind. That's essentially the worldview versus the Christian view. Paul says the prescription for that is totally different. He said the prescription for that, they said that's not what you learned in Christ. The prescription is verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt. He says, put that aside. Verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in the righteousness in the righteousness of holiness. This phrase to be renewed in the spirit of the mind. Two little points here. We've got renewal in salvation. That means we became something totally different. Bible teaches us in your own experience ought to, ought to ratify this that before we're Christians, the stuff of God does not make any sense, right? The rest of the world looks at Christ going through a bloody, torturous sacrifice as barbaric, and they say no father would put his son through that. With the enlightenment of our salvation and the Holy Spirit in our heart, we see that and we go, whoa, that was the greatest gift humanity has ever been given I understand why my sin and the sin of humanity is so big. It required that level of sacrifice. It's elementary. I get it. That concept makes no sense before you're a Christian because of the renewal of our mind. It makes sense afterwards. The point here is our salvation was not a matter of our will. The renewal of our mind was also a gift from God. So if you need a renewal, it's not a matter of will. It's a matter of a supernatural enlightenment from God that enables you to see reality different than you've ever done in the past. Now, the second point is the process. And let me teach this by way of analogy. If you tell me that you're beat down and struggling and you need a renewal, but you only got two days, what do you do? My advice for most of you is go away for the weekend. And if you're married, go away with your spouse and disconnect from your emails and your phones and just spend time with your spouse and just go somewhere different and disconnect. And usually when we do that, we come back 
and we feel totally different because our perspective changed. The process of renewal to accelerate the supernatural change of God that he puts into us is the same process I will do tomorrow morning getting ready for work and that I would do in the middle of the week when I'm tired at night and that I would also do on a weekend if I had a break next weekend, which I don't. But the process is very simple. I separate. Number two, I'm quiet. And number three, I experience. In my morning time, I wake up groggy. I don't drink coffee. I like hot chocolate and tea, so I get either hot chocolate or tea and go to my office. I separate. No one's allowed in my office, not the animals. Natalie can come in for a short visit, but the kids aren't welcome. My office is my sanctuary. And I separate into my office because it's my place and nobody else comes in there. And number two, it's quiet. I don't have a radio in there. I don't play the TV in there. It's me and my books and my Bible, and I got a separate place. And number three, I experience. In the morning, I'm in my Bible. I'm in my prayer time. And my goal every morning before I go shave and take a shower is I want to experience the Holy Spirit in my heart. I just want one raindrop of grace. I want one little reminder, one little nugget. It's the exact same thing if I'm going away with Natalie for a trip. I'm going to be separate. We're going somewhere out of our normal routine. It's going to be quiet. It's just us. We're not just going to go, you know, listen, you know, watch movies nonstop all weekend. And I'm going to experience something. I'm going to experience her. I'm going to experience the place we are. So I've got separate. I got quiet. And I got an experience of what I'm doing. And then and only then am I in a place physically, emotionally, and spiritually where God can say, now you can hear my little quiet whisper. And that's how renewal of the mind takes place. It can happen at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. It can happen at 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night when I'm exhausted. It can happen on a weekend. It can happen at any time, day or night. That's the process and the prescription for the renewing of the spirit of your mind. Now, he then gets into personal standards of conduct, and we'll end on this in the last eight minutes we got. He says on personal standards of conduct, you're going to go through this, you know what your calling is, you know what your walk is, you know what your spiritual gifts are, and you're trying to use them. We're developing maturity by trying to grow into him. My renewal of the mind means I'm separate, I'm quiet, I'm experiencing him on a daily basis if I can. Now, when I go live my life, today after lunch, after I leave my parents' house, Monday after I leave my house and I go into the world, what do I got to do? fascinating where he starts. He says, number one, speak the truth. Uh, this as is, is as raw to me in 2020 as anything because we live in a liar's culture that now permeates politics, that now permeates work, that now permeates social media, that now permeates relationships. We live in a place where personal opinion is now equal to truth. And if someone says the most insane thing, if they believe it, we say, well, okay, I'm not going to criticize them because for whatever crazy reason, that's what they believe. That becomes their truth. We've gotten away from objective truth and, say, and we now have a cultural phrase, which is, what's true for you? Or is that true for you? Well, that's a bunch of crap. Truth is truth. It's objective truth. There is no such thing as personal truth. 
Personal truth is a lie of Satan to make you comfortable with the lie you're living in. There is objective truth defined by God's order and defined by God. Anything else is the equivalent of horse manure. So we got to live in a culture where not only we speak truth, but as believers, if there is someone or something that is untruthful, we call that out. Number two, we've got righteous anger, as I put at the top of your outline. Righteous anger is be angry, yet do not sin. Now, the Greek word that is described here is not the Greek word for emotional anger. You insult my wife, and it flares me up, and I'm angry. Or you hit my mother, and my emotions flare up because I'm protective of my loving mother, and I don't want you to hit my mother. Right? That's not this Greek word. This Greek word is the description of a deep-seated conviction without sin. This word applied would be the way I feel about, you know, fill in the blank on something that would be uh, moving to me. Abortion. Abortion is bad. I don't like abortion. I realize it's the circumstance that can lead to it, but it's something that grieves me because in our culture, it's like going to 7-Eleven. You can get one anytime you want. And the reality of it is that people struggle with it. People go through it that don't want to do it. And we've got to have a heart for it where I have got an emotional reaction to the condition, but I've got to have a heart that says people are driven to this, not because in most instances they're looking to go have more fun. It's because they got a circumstance in life they can't contemplate. So I've got to have a deep-seated reaction to something that has no hint of sin to it, has a hint of love to it, has a hint of understanding to it, and has a hint of trying to change something that culture has made massively acceptable without doing something that's sinful or offensive or insulting to other people, but loving for those that have gone through that, for those that are dealing with that, for those that are advocating for that, because I want to have a righteous conviction towards it with no hint of sin, which means it's got to be wrapped up in the love of Christ. When I work... Why do I work? It says in verse 28, it says, I got to labor, doing honest work with my own hands, so that I may have something to share with anyone in need. It is fascinating in Paul's world. There is no concept of retirement. There is no concept of 401k. There is no concept of savings account. For Paul, if you're working, it's to do something with it. Now, he's not saying here you don't pay your basic bills, you don't meet your needs, He's saying you're going to have some excess and you got to share it with someone. So the whole reason for work is sharing, not wealth acquisition. Fourth point, verse 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouths, but only such good for building up that may give grace to those who hear. I described on your outline is edifying words. I tell people in my office, it's not the old adage of if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. In my office, it's even more explicit. If you can't say something edifying, find one. I do not tolerate the option of silence. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. To me, that's a cop-out. If you can't say something edifying, find one. Because you're going to be using words. You're going to be talking to them. So silence is the equivalent of nothing. So the command here is... If you can't say something nice, 
look for something nice that you can say. And it's not saying you lie. It's not saying anything other than look at them the way Jesus Christ looks at them. Look at them for their potential in Christ. Look at them for their faithfulness in Christ. Don't look at them for their failures or something that they regret. Do it in edifying words to build them up just as Christ would build them up. And the final point in the last couple of minutes we have is verse 31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I could do a whole sermon on that. But the summary is what I wrote on your outline, which is altruistic. It's a fancy college word that means you care more about other people than yourselves. If your friends are not inherently altruistic, you need other friends. If your spouse is not inherently altruistic, it ought to be your number one prayer request for God to bring that kind of change. If those that you do business with are not inherently altruistic, find somebody else to do business with. If your employees are not inherently altruistic, find other employees. It is the transformative grease that get, greases the skids of all social and cultural interaction. Because everything we talked about melts down if you don't end with a heart that cares more for other people than you do for yourselves. And that doesn't mean just those people that you're attracted to. It's those that culture doesn't look highly upon, that Christians look down upon. It's those that God calls us to be the hands and the feet of Christ to. Now, this is really, 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 really easy application in the last couple of seconds I got. And the application is none of this is a matter of will. If you leave this saying, Chris motivated me, I'm going to do more stuff today, I failed. The only way any of this is possible is if you wake up every day and you say, God, today, make me more like Christ. It's what Greg said last week and this morning. It's not a to-do list of what I'm going to do different or better. It's who am I? And your prayer is, God, help me to be more like Christ and fill in the blank where you need some help. In my patience, in my fear, in my self-loathing, in my anger over my past, in my embarrassment over my past, whatever it is, help me be more Christ-like so that I can do these things, to have personal maturity, to use understand and use my spiritual gifts, to have renewal on a daily and weekly basis. All of those things boil down to one word, surrender. Because as long as I'm all Chris Martin, I'm never going to be more like Christ. I'm just more Chris Martin. I'm just doing more stuff, reading more stuff, learning more stuff. I'm just being more Chris Martin. But when I say take away, cut away, surgically take out that part of Chris Martin and add more of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that's already living in my heart, then the to-do list that flows from that becomes a piece of cake. Because the to-do list that flows from that's what Christ does every minute of every day of every second of every instance. It's just being more like Christ. So that's our challenge. We'll do more application next week, chapters uh, 5 and the first part of 6. Get even better. If you, so if you like this, come back next week so it gets even better next week as we go deeper into Ephesians. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study this encouraging word. For those of us that come through a lesson like this and just feel beat up and feel guilt and get reminded of the past, we just say, God, help us turn it over to you. None of this is a matter of will. We need you to take our burdens, take our guilt, take our fear, take our failure, and make us more Christ-like, which is an understanding that we can't fathom, a wisdom that we don't possess, a skill set that we don't have, spiritual gifts that are still undefined and undeveloped, and it becomes less about us and all about you to transform a world with people hurting like us, guilty like us, shameful like us, to give us ministry to people that have gone through what we've gone through so that we can be a way to help them get out of those burdens and that guilt and that shame and all of those things that we run from and hide from. And we do these things to simply say, we love you, we thank you. It's not because of us, it's all because of you. Make us more Christ-like in everything we do this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.